All right, welcome. Delighted to see you all. Um, this is the third, as most of you, I expect, will know, of the series of classes by Slavoj Žižek, who we're always thrilled to work, welcome, thrilled to set to work, thrilled mm-hmm. to welcome at the Birkbeck Institute of Humanities, where I'm now delighted to say I have become part of that institute and therefore I count him as my colleague. You're the boss now, no? <laughs> Esther, Leslie and I are co-directing a feminist gesture, right? Two women, we co-direct. Okay, so um, Slavo, of course, has spoken here many times and <coughs> he always attracts an extraordinary audience of dedicated listeners. I was going to say followers, but I don't like that word, so I'll say listeners. I want to say something that some of you will have heard me say before, which is that I personally owe Slavoj a huge debt because when the sublime object of ideology came out in, I always get it wrong, 1989, 1990. 89. I think it's 89. 89, thank you. In 1989, it felt to me as if it just made a disruption and an intervention into the parlance of public intellectual discourse, which is to say that it brought psychoanalysis into the realm of politics, probably for the first time, more or less, I would say, since Marcuse and the Frankfurt School in a new and continuously illuminating way. So I am personally hugely appreciative of that. Since then, of course, don't worry, I'm not going to list his books. He has written prolifically about subjects which border, always border, on politics, psychoanalysis, philosophy, ethics, and much more. He is the original interdisciplinary critical thinker. Um, he is talking this week about the relationship between philosophy and psychoanalysis. And just one small piece of housekeeping is that both he and I have to leave ten to two today, so I will ten close to four. Ten. You yeah, said ten to two. I she did. did, no? I did. But you made the correct sleep. That would be my desire. So hello, I must be going. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry about that. Um, ten to four, so I will stop the session at quarter two, so that we really get away at ten two. Um, and I will now hand over to Slavoj, who I know is going to start by responding to a question about transcendence which he has been handed from the floor. So welcome to you all, welcome Slavoj, and over to you. Thanks very much, and uh, for me uh, it's always disgusting to, in this patronizing pseudo-feminist way to say how wonderful a woman like you, great theory, I always suspect that when you address someone like that, you know, it's this, the worst male chauvinism. The idea is, you see, She is a woman, but in spite of that, she is not totally stupid. You know, there are always these games. So I will celebrate you in the only way I can. I will say, while I'm reading you, I quite often really, really hate you. It's envy. Because you are often so good that, you know, I said, fuck her bitch, let her have a heart attack. Why didn't I write that? And so on. No, that's the only recognition you get from... Because, you know, when you praise someone, implicitly you are above you know, like, you posit yourself on... No! When I truly, like, there are, and there are, unfortunately, for my male chauvinism, but for the interest of eternal theory, fortunately, if you put on the balance, at least in our field, the top masculine and feminine theorists, at least in my narrower field, people who are somehow close to me, I'm glad to say... There are more top women. It's you, it's... I don't agree with her, but she has potentials. Katrin Malabu, it's Rebecca Komei, from my own country, Alenka Zupancic, and so on. And I, f- I just find this wonderful. For example, as I already said here, isn't it wonderful that 
The three best books on Hegel written in the last decades were all written by women. It's Beatrice Longenech, Hegel and the Critic of Metaphysics, years ago. Uh, uh, then it was, of course, now Rebecca Comey, Catherine Malabou. Later he got distracted through all this brain science stuff, whatever. But her The Future of Hegel is still an excellent book. So isn't this wonderful news? It's not that as some... Thank you. Yeah. I've just written him a note. <laughs> I know, I quote her, the, I only thought, now this is, I am saying this sincerely as an apology, but as I already told you once, I heard rumors that behind all this sisterly love... Oh, don't start this again. Yeah, yeah, Please yeah. Don't start so, this again, Slavoj. I was afraid Bad to start. mention yeah, it. No, no, yeah, because okay. you're wrong, you're wrong, that's why, you should be afraid to mention okay, it. Okay, 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 yeah, yeah, of course, her, her uh, okay. Hegel contra sociology or whatever, no? It seems like, and what I especially like with Gillian is the... She began what I like to count, include myself into, let's call it naively, materialist theology. This mm -hmm. link to theology, which is paradoxically not theological. Yes, okay. So now, uh, before Thank I begin, uh, before I, and uh, uh, sorry, last my envy, admiration to you. I don't know how you will read it, but I heard that once you had a talk or a debate with Netanyahu, an interview or what? No. And that, uh, uh, pardon me if I put it in my vulgar male feminist terms, you squeezed his balls. Although you admitted to me that unfortunately, bad news for us, he is a very intelligent guy in this superficial sense and so on, no? I did interview Netanyahu. And you told I me this, that he I don't think I put it quite like you did. No, I just put but it in plastic terms so that ordinary people can he understand. He revealed us. himself. We'll get off this now. Yeah? And if you're interested, it's a film called Dangerous Liaison, Israel and America. It was made for Channel 4 Television in 2002, which does include, indeed include an interview with the hyper-polished Netanyahu, who, by the way, was not PM of Israel at the time, but had Office of the Prime Minister on his door. I hand over to you. Oh my God! Well, I, I, I kind of, uh, I'm starting to like the guy. Okay, let me just answer a question which came to me now. One of you writing to me. I came yesterday because you were going to talk about transcendence, which you don't often do. But I didn't hear you mention that word even once. I say nothing about the boring German. Sorry. Here, I simply, I'm too stupid to guess. Who is the boring German? Hegel or who? I simply don't get it. But who let me... Where are you? The no, no, I'm not putting pressure. On, I mean, oh, you okay. have the full right to remain anonymous and so on. All I'm saying is that look at the title of my talk, if I got it correctly. I promise to speak about not transcendence, but the transcendental dimension. I think the official title was, can we overcome, get over the transcendental dimension. Okay, now I don't want to be too patronizing, but you must know that in the Kantian tradition, transcendental and transcendent or transcenders are exactly the opposite. For Kant, we are limited to our experience, and our approach to reality is structured through this uh, a priori transcendental categories of reason. Kant is looking for transcendentals in the sense of 
when we approach reality through which frame it's not even a frame it's like natural frame through what frame do we perceive necessarily it's an a priori reality you know then you have all the categories like identity cause effects time space whatever but kant's point is precisely that the reality we we get structured in this way it's a phenomenal reality it's not the transcendent reality if by transcendence we imagine reality the way it is in itself independently outside or however from our subjectivity so but, but second point and here even if i didn't use the word transcendence i think in a confused way so uh, to repay my debt to you as i promised this evening i will send to you all the stuff and so on i think i did answer precisely that question yesterday because in a confused way what i was improvising about is this shift from kant to hegel which is as i emphasized the shift from epistemological obstacle to ontological impossibility kant for kant the transcendence is uh, is unreachable we cannot get at how the things are in themselves uh so for kant that was my point you remember yesterday our antinomies the antinomies we get caught into necessarily when we try to think uh, reality in its wholeness in its entirety beyond the our uh, our finitude uh, we get caught into antinomies which are for kant even stronger than simple antagonisms or contradictions or whatever and they are necessary they are as it were they are uh, a necess- this is where kant becomes almost one of the forerunners of the theory of ideology which is not simply a subjective error but a necessary as kant calls it transcendental illusion and then what i tried to do you remember all those examples that i was repeating again and again from my previous book adorno's notion of society and so on my point was exactly how hegel what i promised in my title steps beyond the transcendental the antinomy not in this naive sense of saying but we have somehow somehow penetrate through antinomies to how reality in itself is but precisely the basic dialectical reversal to claim that what appears as a problem is its own solution that antinomies is the real is how reality in itself is structured so this is the basic turn of hegel 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 is uh, uh, you know people usually defend kant against hegel neo kantians in this sense kant is much more modest he limits our mind to our finitude and so on while uh, sorry kant while hegel regresses to uh, pre critical metaphysics he provides the whole scheme of reality and so on and so on uh, uh, no i think that it's the opposite kant is too modest and tender kant kant uh, limits antinomies to epistemology to our mind to how we perceive reality while hegel goes in this madness to the end and claims no kantian antinomies are 
constitutive of, if you want to put it in this way, on reality in itself. Which means also that we have to desubstantialize reality. And that, I will come later today to that. That was my point. That uh, the, if you want, it's popular to use these terms today, although I'm, I hope you also, I'm deeply distrustful of this explosion of new ontologies today. Uh, they raise very interesting questions, but I don't think they really overcome the transcendental dimension. You know, from Grand Harman to, well, I don't even know what is happening now with Kentem Meyasu. He somehow, as they say, erased himself out of the picture. This idea, enough of, enough of deconstruction, transcendental approach, where you just get caught into this uh, discursive immanent analysis, and let's return to positive ontology. I try to find the, a third way here, claiming Yes, they are onto something, but not in this naive sense of return to ontology. It's all we can do is to transpose the deadlock of antinomies into reality itself. And then I, my tribute to Gillian, uh, then I uh, uh, tried to found, you remember towards the end yesterday, tried to find an echo of Christianity into it. That's for me the basic operation of Christianity. I will repeat it. Our basic experience is we are separated from God. God is beyond. How does Christianity overcome this? Not by saying, okay, but if you torture yourself enough or do good works, you somehow reach God. No. At that point, when you feel yourself abandoned by God, you are in the position of Jesus Christ of God. So that the gap that separates you from God, it's a gap which from within cuts across God himself. That's a typical Hegelian operation. And Hegel, uh, it's wonderful, he does one slip of tongue where he betrays this. Uh, you know, when Hegel talks somewhere about the difference between uh, Eastern Orthodoxy and Western Christianity. I will not go into this, is he Orientalist here or whatever, just the slip of tongue that he makes. He knows very well, because he writes at other places about this, that you know it was theologically the reason for the split, one of the reasons. Uh, the provenance of the Holy Ghost, no? For uh, Western Christianity, it's from Father and Son. Oh, both together, God, Father, and Jesus Christ, from both of them arises, emanates Holy Spirit. For orthodoxy, Father must remain an unconditional boss, king. It's only from the Father. Now, Hegel knows this, again, because he writes elsewhere, but in the crucial formulation, he commits a stupid but beautiful mistake. He says, the difference is that for Orient, for uh, Orthodoxy, uh, Holy Spirit uh, emanates, comes, originates from Father and Son, and from Western Christianity only from the Son. I think he was right, in a way. Because my reading of, he of Christianity is Hegel's, where as Hegel put it, again, what happens on the cross? It's not just that a representative of God dies, and you know, 
God screwed it up, so my son, come back to me, and maybe in thousand years I will try again to send the Messiah. Christ is not a Messiah. What, as Hegel puts it, it's extraordinary. What dies on the cross is not here a terrestrial representative of God, but is a God of beyond itself. The death of... Crucifixion means precisely we are free. There is no death up there or whatever. Agency pulling secretly the, uh, uh, the springs and so on and so on. The message is the one even, I quote him somewhere, uh, made clear even by some conservative Catholics, whom I, as usual, admire more and more, like Paul Claudel. He said that the ultimate message of Christianity is not you can rely on God, like things may appear confused, but you can trust somebody pulls this. But he said, on the contrary, the ultimate message of Christianity is God is impotent without us. God is powerless without us. And I think this accounts for this passivity of Christ. Christ, you know, it's so interesting to talk with Christian priests. I'm sorry if I repeat myself a little bit. I had many debates with them Ah, please, yes. Uh, there are seats all... There are lots... Of, could you all move up to the end of your row? There are seats all across the room. And but there are I lots always of people suspect that people prefer to stay there because then they are bored. It's easier... To get out. Which is my, my idea is, do you want to do this medicine and we share the profit? You stay there. Anyone who goes out just for the toilet have to leave 20 pounds with you. <laughs> He gets them back only if he, you know. It's true people's democracy. It's kind of... Okay, let's stop it. Let me go on. Uh, uh, I want to ask you a question. You. I want to ask you a question immediately. Do it now. Okay. Okay. You said that what... I think you say that what Hegel does is transposes the deadlock of the antinomies into reality itself. He says this. Yes. Yes. And what you say is the gap that separates you from God cuts within God himself. Yes. I think these are psychoanalytic comments. I want you to think? suggest to you that they're psychoanalytic comments, or rather I want you to suggest how what you're saying might link to psychoanalysis. Because That's, it seems to me yeah. they're resonant okay, with first a certain I will say, of, of Lacan's analytic yeah, yeah. process. First I will say, okay, maybe. But uh, I have many quotes I cannot go How, of course... My one piece of evidence, no, is that Eli, Eli, Lama, Sabachthani, Father, why have you forsaken me? And I had wonderful debates. I'm not uh, 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 floating around. I will answer you. Uh, uh, with priests, where I ask them a simple, stupid question. When Christ is dying on the cross and bemoans, oh, oh Father, I'm suffer, is he bluffing or not? Incredible how priests who were all the time studying the Bible, how many were confused. Once I was at a round table with many priests and they started to fight each other and understand them because whatever you answer, you are in deep shit. If you say Christ is nonetheless God, he he was bluffing, then that's horror. Then this means that crucifixion was just a spectacle. For us to impress, it was a good PR operation. But in reality, let's let's perform as if I'm suffering, but hi, Dad, I join you in half an hour or whatever. Now, if Christ really suffered, then, as 
Chesterton put it. Then you really have to suppose that it's a beautiful term by Chesterton that God himself becomes for a brief moment an atheist. God commits the ultimate sin of not believing in himself and so on and so on and so on. So, uh, 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 and it's incredible from Luther to other theologists what problems they have with this. I'm sorry if I repeat, but it's my favorite story, anecdote. A joke, when I was in Poland, I had a debate with a Catholic priest. He was presented to me as a liberal, but you know, I'm sorry, I love Poland, if there are some Poles here, but my impression in Poland was that if somebody says he's a liberal, it just means that he's not openly anti-Semitic or whatever, no? and that he maybe allows, in some exceptional cases, abortion and so on, you know. Okay, but this priest, we debated, then I asked him, okay, this question, what happens on the cross and then I also ask him you know all those problematic points like I don't bring peace I bring uh, war so yeah if you have a shirt and don't have a shirt uh, sell your shirt buy a shirt and uh, uh, if you don't hate your father mother you are not how do you read this my god I loved his answer not his answer I'm so sorry you confused me I'm not ready now prepared to answer and I exploded I told him Fuck you! You had 2,000 years to prepare the answer, you know? It's not that he learned now this. All the time and they don't have an answer. And most of the... uh, You know why I like Protestantism? Ah, there I have debates with people who are... I'm more and more getting, unfortunately, Protestant. Because the implication of Protestantism, of predestination... It's that basically God is ethically a primitive thug playing with us. Protestantism means, I will just play a game, you are redeemed, you are not, no matter what you do. It's a certain insight, not only into a cruelty of God, but into this mindless, brutal ignorance of God. That's why my preferred theological image is the opposite one of that one, you know, Things may appear confused to us, but if you get close to God, you see higher order. No, God is the same as a devil. Devil is just a close-up on God. If you get too close to God, you see. what You know, it's like my favorite scene, we all know it, Kafka the castle. From down there, they think castle is majestic and so on. But you remember once uh, uh, Joseph, no, it's not Joseph K, just K, the whatever, uh, uh, tries to climb up and he almost arrives at the castle and he sees that these are just small dirty buildings, nothing special and so on and so on. But okay, let me stop with it and claim that I totally agree with you. But then to see this message of God divided from within whatever in itself, it must be a very high level psychoanalysis. Even Freud was here often tempted. For example, I agree with those, especially Laplanche, I don't always follow him, who claim that the whole theory of duality, Eros Thanatos, is a misstep. It's a regression into this kind of a, the, wor- the worst sexualized cosmic duality, you know, death, life, and so on. So I claim that even for Freud, this gesture 
It is psycho. Maybe this is one of those magical moments when, through psychoanalysis, you see something in theology. But to see this in psychoanalysis, you also need to be deep in theology, how should I put it? That. This is what I was also improvising yesterday, when now we, philosophical Lacanians, are widely attacking Europe as, this is not the real thing, you are just telling stories, the only real psychoanalysis is clinic, and so on and so on. No, the only way to see what psychoanalysis is about is that it has profound ontological philosophical consequences. After psychoanalysis, this naive ontology, there is a reality out there and so on, is no longer, is no longer possible. And did I already mention this, interrupt me if I repeat myself, but if you think again, because now some people also uh, uh, accuse me of being anti-Muslim and so on, uh, here things are so interesting. Uh, I read some Western, purely racist, Aristotelian conservative Catholic analysis, which claims, no, they have a problem, conservative Catholics today. They see two enemies today, Muslim fundamentalism, blah, blah, and Western permissivity. And as good Stalinists, you have to prove that this is, uh, how did they put it, a Jewish-Bolshevik plot or whatever, that the two are the same. And, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but I want to make the point again. In a very ingenious way, and I'm tempted to agree with them, but this is an argument for some unexpected dimension in Islam, they are, namely their claim is this one, that the true Christianity, philosophy which fits it, is uh, Aquinas, this great realistic synthesis. And incidentally, there is something in this, because Marxism at its worst, this dialectical materialist Stalinist system. I, when I was young, I already read the book. It's incredible. In the 50s, there was a kind of a honeymoon between dialectical materialist and neo-Thomist Catholics. The key guy here is uh, 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 Johann, I think, Bochensky, a Jesuit. B-O-C-H-E-N-S-K-I. Bochensky, he wrote a book on dialectical materialism and theology where he shows great sympathy for dialectic. He says dialectical materialism is basically realist. Like reality is out there in this Aristotelian way through our rational mind we can um, arrive at the inner core. What he likes together with Stalinists is that they see their own realist philosophy as opposed to what is for them the evil of modernism, solipsism, whatever, all that. And now I come to the beauty. Uh, there is a, a European conservative, sorry, I forgot his name, Jesuit, tried to prove that uh, both this direction, today's Islamic fundamentalism, I will not go into it to what extent this holds, but what we designate as that. And uh, modernity at its worst for them, for conservatives, this permissivity, everything is enjoyment, you do whatever you want, no normal rules, there is no reality, uh, 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 we, uh, there are just stories that we are telling about reality, have the same origin. This is the Stalinist moment, like Judeo 
Judeo-Bolshevik plot. They are really the same. And you know what's the proof? That, again, Aquinas is the big good guy, but then the origin of evil is Avicenna and others, the Muslim misreading of Aristotle with a nominalist twist. The accusation is that Muslim philosophers who were greatly respected, you know, it's beautiful, these were much more open times, the dark Middle Ages. You know that Aquinas talks about philosopher, he means Aristotle, he doesn't name him, and then he talks about commentator, he means Avicenna. So uh, the idea is that they, Muslim readers, introduced this, the first nominalist gap. You no longer have this Aristotelian harmony where reality has a hierarchic structure and through our reason we can discover this structure, universals are immanent to reality, but it's a vision where there is a gap. On the one hand, you have brutal external reality and our structuring of this reality is always external to it. And you can give to these two twists, either the nominalist twist, then you arrive at, in this quick overview, at postmodernism, the idea being the real is out there, non-articulated, however we symbolize it, these are, you know, stories we are telling ourselves, no foundation in truth, objective truth doesn't exist. Or you do what, according to this reactionary reading, Koran is doing, that you claim we have some speech, Koran, divine world, which is true irrespective of its relation to reality. The idea is, and this is who was the bad guy, the one whom I really hated, uh, consider humanist, uh, uh, the, the Polish Pope, John Paul II, you know when he made that statement, totally wrong philosophically, that the difference between he mentioned some uh, Byzantinian uh, 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 emperor who said this, that, that uh, Western religion, even if its religion is logos, is rational, we can argue, while Oriental, I mean, Islam is totally irrational. You have these absolute dogmatic prescriptions, you cannot argue, and so on and so on. Not only I think this is wrong, but I think this is the attitude I am aiming at. So again, the idea is that in utter dogmaticism and it in vulgar nominalism, this organic link between reality and its conceptual structure is broken. And we, uh, again, we, uh, then the modern choice is if we abandon this Aristotelian realism, it's either postmodern relativism reality is out there, who knows what it is, we are just stories telling ourselves, or the only way out, absolute dogmaticism. I claim that, and I'm not the first one, I wonder if it's translated, I think it was, but it's now half forgotten into English, already in early 20s, Ernst Bloch wrote a nice small book, Avicenna und die Aristotelische Linke. Avicenna, you know, the Muslim interpreter of, in Spain uh, of Aristotle, and the Aristotelian left. Where, basically, from a positive standpoint, he does the same. So, again, I am the first one. I'm now often attacked as, I don't know, Islamophobic to attacking it. But 
my God, you know, there are surprising things you can discover there. I think I already mentioned this beautiful news. I like to repeat it here. Haiti Revolution. Look at its history. Who was one of the key ideologists in the positive sense, propagators? A guy called John Bookman. Obviously a reference to a guy, a black slave, but nonetheless the one who was able to read, no? Among the slaves. But you know what was the book he referred to? Quran. Not as you would expect Bible or some enlightenment book. You know, so it's, things are very much more complex, ambiguous here. So again, to come back to you, I kind of lost almost my thread, is that I agree with you, but uh, again, the point is also to change, to clarify which psychoanalysis we mean, you know, because if you go, if you follow the path of Jung, ob often Freud and Jung are not opposed in the right way. Everybody has to be, I think, against Jung, because Jung does exactly what shouldn't be done. He reinscribes whatever we call it, he calls it in a totally wrong way, different psychology, depth psychology, back into this pre-modern universe. For Jung, unconscious is a deeper truth. You should... Sorry? Yeah. But in this sense, you look deep into yourself. But the ABC of Freud is that if you look deep into yourself, you discover fundamental fantasies, which means fundamental lies and so on. There is nothing uh, redeeming in it. And my friend Mladen Dolar discovered this, that uh, there is Freud reports of an anecdote, which is one of the most beautiful that I know, where he physically encountered the truth of his uh, theory. In Slovenia, there are two subterranean caves. One big one, which is bullshit already with a subterranean uh, 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 train for tourists. But there is another cave close to Italian border called Scotland Cave, which is big abyss. It's really terrifying and it's a beautiful detail. It's not a story. I checked it up. Okay, story. Who knows? Whatever. It's a true story. Okay, whatever. You know that Dante in his youth, visited that cave, and his idea of hell came from there. Okay, so Freud visited that cave, and deep, deep into it, has an almost mystical experience, not really, Freud was right in his rationalism, namely, out of some misty underground corridor, an old dark guy approached him. Like, the idea was, of course, now I see the primordial father, the ultimate truth. Then, looking closely at him, he discovered, you know who this guy was? Karl Lueger, the anti-Semitic mayor of Vienna. And Lueger is, Lüge is lie. This is a wonderful message of, you go deep, deep, you don't encounter the ultimate You'd encounter a cheap anti-Semite, one of the intellectual fathers of Freud. Trumpism, Trumpism. That's what you yeah, but one thing, we had here serious debates about Trump. Admit one thing, that where Trump is almost Lacanian. People usually wear, I'm sorry, I repeat an old joke, but for the lady, she deserves it. Trump, uh, people usually have a wig, but they try to look, make, make to look as real hair. But Trump has real hair which looks like a wig. Admit <laughs> it. No, so. Then, uh, then... <laughs> Okay, she is disgusting, she cannot be more, I admit it. And I also agree, I am now conceding a little bit that, you know, 
it's wrong to say but manners don't matter and so on. Manners do matter today more than ever. I'm here a very superficial guy. Manners matter. Ethical miracles happen precisely when, not when we look deep into ourselves and discover that we are good persons. Don't do this. If you look deep into yourself, you will always discover that you are a piece of shit or whatever. But that uh, when, in a way, the superficial surface of your being takes over. I'm sorry, the last thing I will repeat, then, uh, then we go to serious work. Most beautiful, I'm sorry some of you know it, most beautiful anecdote that I was told by some friends from South Africa. Forty years ago, in the time of apartheid, this was a legend that I was told, there was a black demonstration and police attacked, dispersed it. And then they were following around individuals to beat them up a little bit, whatever. At that moment, a miracle happened. A white, uh, sorry, a black, my God, I'm a beggar. A black lady who was obviously not too poor with high heels and so on, ran away from a policeman who was running after her with a baton, how you call it, no? Stick. And then something happened, yes. At that moment, of course, you cannot run comfortably with high heels. The woman slipped a little bit and one of her shoes fell off. At that moment, this guy, and the point is the white policeman, he wasn't a good guy. But this totally superficial manners automatically for a brief moment took over. And he stopped, picked up the shoe and says, here lady gave it back to her. And then was the magical moment. Why? Because then they looked at each other like, what should we do now? Should we say, okay, let's start running again or what? So they were both just embarrassed. The guy, the policeman said, hi lady, and turned around. But you know why I like this story? I'm not claiming the white policeman was really deep in himself a good guy. No, but this totally, even made chauvinist superficial manners, you treat a lady like this and so on, took over and allowed him briefly to, to overcome dirty racist prejudices and so on and so on. I believe in superficial things. Maybe, nonetheless, how much of your time did I... Suck? Ah, I'm not doing too bad. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Now I will do something. Let's... Uh, uh, again, if I will get lost again, please, believe me, uh, I will, as I promised, this evening, because from here I have to run to Oxford, then this evening you will get texts, and it's all available to you. I mean, uh, the texts, some chapters from my forthcoming book. Because, you know, I told you already this, I exploit you. I never prepare lectures. I read from the stuff of my next book. But today, so that you will not just accuse me of doing this, I would like to do something very risky. I'm even afraid that I will be, that it will be total bullshit. But it's my great private pleasure to do this. I will try to illustrate or provide an example of this basic dissenterment, let's call it in that way, that I'm talking about this necessity of surplus of excess through some extremely simple examples from music. And please take this in all naivety. I asked 
some friends of mine who know classical music, and they told me, okay, you are not totally wrong, it's so-so, but it's a little bit naive, so at least it makes minimal sense to them. The basic thing I will talk about, just to give you a line in advance, so that then we go quickly through the clips, is uh, in music, the relationship of what in music it would be what in painting is main figure and background. How, uh, uh, what interests me is that moment, which is, I think, typical of Western subjectivity in music, you know. You have that more rhythmic accompaniment, preparation, and then you expect the melody, the beautiful moment to explode. Or even if it's the same melody, you have it first performed in this restrained way, just string clips, and then full orchestra subjectivity takes off. I will try to prove that this is false subjectivity, that the subject is elsewhere, and I will try to prove that in authentic art, this full explosion of emotion always fails. That in true art, melody has to fail, but it returns as an excess too late. My memory here, I cannot restrain from sharing an obscenity. Even now, it causes nightmares. I remember when I was in high school, the first year or second, in communist Yugoslavia, the regime tried to be more modern, so we had a class or two on sexual education. And it was wonderful, because, as you can expect it, a fat, old, half-bald guy came with thick spectacles, and obviously he was more embarrassed than us, and he talked about all possible things, biology, he was obviously ashamed to touch the topic itself. At the very end, when we were all looking, he had to say something. It was beautiful. He said, let's forget about the details. Ultimately, it's like this. And he drew two triangles which shared the same base. He draw one triangle like this, no, straight, and then another triangle like this, which the top comes later. And said, you know, that's a man, he finishes quickly, and that's a woman afterwards, and all the problem is simply to bring these two triangles together. <laughs> I can tell you that even now I have nightmares, you know. Somebody says sex orgasm, I think about this bald man saying triangles as a total bureaucrat. So, to be at this level, to remain at this level, my point is that... Uh, no, it's a wrong theory. The worst thing that can happen is if these triangles come together. That's the romantic line. Okay, first I will show you a clip, short one, it's uh, not even uh, two minutes. Sorry, uh, just stop. Or, okay, wait a second. From, don't laugh at me, from James Bond movie, uh, 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 You Only Live Twice, it's a scene of marriage, you know, James Bond... <laughs> organized by Secret Service has to pose as a poor Japanese fisherman and to make it more convincing he has, it's a fake ceremony to marry a Japanese girl and you will see how this marriage scene is staged James Bond is there waiting for the bride to come just listen carefully not only to the movement of the camera but to music it's an extremely simple point let's do it, so first James Bond. 
Ah, it works, yes. Can you put it up a little bit so the Ah yeah, oh my god, perfect, yes. Uh, Now, the car. and prepare the next one. It's an extremely simple scene, but I think it's the worst of Eurocentric Orientalism and so on. Did you notice how in this simple tension between the first part of the melody restrained and then when the melody goes on, this is the Orientalist version of East and West. East restrained, pre-subjective, West the overflowing of, I mean, here, if we don't have a different melody, but just all the wealth of the violins and so on and so on. And I claim this is the fake romantic subjectivity, this fullness to be expressed, that the definition of the true art is to find a different subject which is at work already in the preparative mode. True art, all the true art needs is the first part. So I will give you another example and be careful... I'm very open here, maybe I'm totally wrong, maybe I'm missing the point, but from my perspective, from our romantic experience, the way we are all branded by romanticism, I, it's, uh, we experience as if at least I do, something is missing, where, you know it's mega kitsch, you get it in all those, you know those, I was like to buy them, you know those for 99 pence CDs, you know, the best hits or, of music or whatever, you know. It's Paschal Bell Canon. Be attentive to this. Maybe your experience will be different. My God, I hate this now. I sound as if I'm from, from L.A. or San Francisco, <laughs> California. Okay, screw your experience. This is what you should feel. That, that, that uh, it's as if it never comes to melody. It's something which sounds to us the preparatory accompaniment motive, and then you wait, when will the melody appear? It doesn't. Do it. Canon. You know it, of course. It's mega hit. Yeah. 
see, it does get richer, but it never really takes off. It's, you, you can stop. Wait a it's the same melody goes on. Now I will do something really low. We will make a direct jump to kitsch. The definition of kitsch is that you have this preparatory motive which just sounds as preparing, and then you add a beautiful melody. I am ashamed to, to do this here because it's from my youth. There was a disgusting band from Greece, Greece is not disgusting, but they are, called Aphrodite's Child. And they had a big hit, maybe some of you even know it, called Rain and Tears. I've chosen that one because the prepara this first part, half a minute, sounds exactly like Pachelbel, but obviously is not enough, you need the beautiful melody. Let's do it. No, 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 it doesn't matter, no. You see, it's almost the same. And now I'm ready to shoot. Listen. That's still okay. That's still okay. Now, here I start shooting. That's the definition of kitsch. As if, you know, the read rocking effective, that's not enough. Okay, stop. I don't want to lose too much time. Okay, let's go to the next one. Uh, I claim that the melody in this sense, in which we enjoy it today, maybe even appeared only with pre-romanticism at that time with Mozart. Mozart at least does it in a nicer way, but I suspect in my Stalinist court, he's already laying the foundations for Kitsch. It's uh, one of the most uh, beautiful, if you want, examples. His uh, Grand Partita for seven instruments, Serenade, the third movement. And you have exactly this structure of just something that sounds to us like accompaniment and then from up above the beautiful melody. We do Grand Partita, yeah? This is the preparation. moving towards rain and tears, you know, like, towards the Greek holiday. <laughs> okay, stop. Now, I will move a step further, and I will still try to... Oh, my God. We missed something. I made a mistake. Doesn't matter. Forget about it. Uh, to uh, where Kitsch begins. Not so much Mozart as Beethoven. In Beethoven, he does something. Okay, let's accept the melody. But then I'm so mad at myself because we erased the wrong, the part which was under... What Beethoven does is, when he, in his symphonies and so on, 
he has the basic no no we will go on yeah he has a basic motif then you have this symphonic structure improvisation acceleration and at the end he in an unashamed way fully forcefully repeats this motif for me the result is obscene if we will have here the Leonore 3 the overture the third overture no wait a minute It's full of it. Yeah, 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 but please, mistake, jump somewhere here. Here, here. Yeah, here it will be. Go, sorry, go uh, half a minute, a little. Here. Okay, now we can, you can... Now you will get the melody, the, the basic motif, I'm mean, sorry. Can you make it a little bit louder? That's the motif. Sorry that I erased before it was a wrong title because I wanted to compare this with Mozart's overture to Zauberflete, Magic Flute, where you have the same structure, the motif, you have the acceleration, but then when you expect the full motif repeated with tutti, Mozart cuts it. As if there is a certain limit, and I'm so sad we cannot go into this. Okay, let's stop it. Because what Mozart then does, and I spoke with some musicologist who told me I'm not totally dreaming, confirm me that. Precisely because this pseudo-orgasmic moment, full melodic climax, is blocked, it reappears at the end. What's so wonderful in Mozart at its best is that when you think it's already the finale, the last tones, all of a sudden you have a final explosion. As if you know, the structure is should have been climax and down, but no, the climax is thwarted, and it's even, it, as a kind of a reminder, it pops up at the end. And, okay, my theory here is that you only have subject proper when you have the gap between the two. The danger of romanticism is that you think subject can be not thwarted, not Bart, but can fully explode in this full subjectivity, oh my God, climatic moment of a melody, and so on and so on. That's always an ideological lure, that subject means you have to have two climaxes. In this gap, subject 
countries. I'm so sorry that I missed that one because then I had other examples of these postponed climaxes, but it would have been too much. We don't have time. We don't have time for that. So uh, let me go on. Now I, this was the introduction. Yeah, <laughs> Now, <laughs> now uh, I would like to what I can do today. Just some improvisations, more, but based on my text. To uh, why, why sexuality? What is so radical about Freudian notion of sexuality? It's exactly the operation I claim that I described. Yesterday, apropos of Hegel, this tra- and Kant, this transposition of epistemological obstacle into an ontological, into an ontological impossibility. Uh, let's go into so-called uh, 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 how do you call children's sexuality or whatever. What's the problem there? The problem is, to put it bluntly, one of knowledge. We don't, children don't know, they know something is happening within Perba, they don't know what, and then they imagine. If you want to get a wonderful idea of this, is, I mentioned it here, but I think this was years ago, you saw, I hope, uh, David Lynch's Blue Velvet. It's the most beautiful reading provided by my friend Michel Chillon, who is, I think, a mega theorist of cinema, especially of sound and voice, but now he's kind of obliterated, very sad, I don't know. You remember that scene, the most iconic scene, whatever, when Kyle MacLachlan, the hero of the movie, watches through a closet door, the weird sadomasochistic, whatever you call it, but it's more complex, sexual interplay between the obscene paternal figure Dennis Hopper and Isabella Rossellini. And you have and you have uh, you have this uh, uh, famous scene where uh, Dennis Hopper, before starting to make love, if you can call this <laughs> making love, this brutality to her, he puts on an oxygen breathing mask and breathes heavily and shouts all the time stupid obscenities like daddy wants to fuck or, or I don't know, it's the opposite, boy wants to fuck, whatever. Some, sorry? Baby wants to fuck, yeah, sorry, whatever, yeah. And uh, so what does this mean? Uh, Sion provides a beautiful reading, simple, that uh, all this stuff, the key to all this stuff, breathing and so on, is simply that you should read this scene, but this is only one of the perspectives, as the visualization of what a small kid here, imagine, uh, here's, imagine a small kid listening in the door, parents making love. And he hears the father breathing heavily. He doesn't know what, so he imagines, oh my God, my father must be breathing uh, oxygen mask and so on and so on. It's fantasy at its purest. It's based on some uh, uh, audio residues, you fantasize the scene. But the scene from... Uh, Uh, Blue Velvet, incidentally, it's much more complex, because then it's the problem, I think it's the only consequent reading, it's the key to David Lynch why is Dennis Hopper shouting like crazy and uh, boasting with his brutality I think it's the only way to read this scene from the other perspective, is that 
Dennis Hopper is an impotent father, and the whole point of this show is too, that she knows that the child is observing him to cover up. He has to point out this brutality to cover up the fact of his impotence. And that's why Dennis Hopper fits nicely into this series of Lynchian heroes, which can appear brutal, but are brutal in an immanently ridiculous comical way. Like my favorite example, uh, uh, otherwise I don't like the movie so much, Lost Highway. You remember the same paternal figure, that gangster who hires the hero, how? They're driving on a car and then somebody overtakes them or whatever, somebody on the street drives too fast or whatever. And then this mafia boss orders to stop, uh, orders the driver to stop that car, to coin him, and then has an extremely violent explosion. You are afraid he will kill that driver. But you know what he is saying? It's ridiculous. He's saying quite rational things, this father. He's shouting at him, don't you know, 60,000 people are dead. Why are you driving like that? And so on and so on. And I admire this ingenious idea of a totally ordinary warning. But it's done with this ridiculous excess and so on and so on. So, okay, but let me return to it. What's the message of this scene? Is that that's how child sexuality is structured. You fill in the gaps through fantasies. Now comes the big Freud's conclusion. We never grow up. It's never a moment when you can say, okay, now I know it and I no longer need a fantasy. I know how to do it. I simply do it. Of course, you can learn how to do it physically. Erection, blah, blah, blah. But you always need a fantasy like that of Kyle MacLachlan. You never fully learn it. The structure of our sexuality always remains that, that one, and that's what in a way Lacan means by il n'y a pas de rapport sexuel, that uh, you need a phantasmatic supplement. We ne- and uh, this, what does this mean? This means that, a step further we should go here, that it's not enough to say children are curious and so on and so on, that this curiosity is not just something that is displayed, curiosity means you don't know it, by those who don't yet know what sexuality is and so on and so on, without this ear ignorance, this intrigue, that I don't know what's going on so I need to fantasize father breathing oxygen and so on and so on, you don't have sexuality. Without this, this element of ignorance is not just the stupid child or whomever, ignorance of what sexuality is, you got the link with that Hegelian shift from uh, epistemology to ontology, it's constitutive of the thing itself. Let's say you know fully what is sexuality, you don't need a fantasy. Sorry, then you are not making love. You are just, I don't know, copulating in an animal way where even, even there I have a problem if even animals are so stupid. I doubt. Because, you know, as Lacan pointed out, with animals you have complex strategies of posturing, display. But one thing, and if some of you are bi- behavior biologists, maybe you know it better. The only way I was able spontaneously to differentiate between 
humans proper and animals, all those animals like peacocks and so on, who has all this display is that. But I wonder if I'm wrong, do you know? The obvious idea would be a very strange one noted by some some, uh, Darwinian evolutionists that in animal kingdom, it's almost exclusively the man who is posturing, who has to have all the colored feathers and so on and so on. While with humans, it is at least in our, till now, patriarchal society, it's the woman who is supposed to be masked with all the colors and so on and so on. So, uh, so in a way, a nice, tragic, ironic conclusion, it's almost that animals are more feminists, you know, because there we men have to do the work to seduce, you know, and the woman says yes or no. Well, but of course it gets more complex. What I'm just trying to say here is that I hope you saw the point. First, that the link between sexuality and enigma, ignorance, knowledge, it's immanent. It's not just that sexuality is mysterious, in the sense that it's some secret, we never go to the end of it. No, this very structure of secret is, is sexuality. I even think that up to a point you can sexualize a quite innocent scene, how to cook something or whatever, if you introduce into it this element of mystery and so on. And that's what, as I developed in some of my books, that's what I claim behavioral. There uh, There are cognitive Darwinian psychologists and so on who are not idiots. You learn quite interesting things from them. But there are idiots. One great idiot is, unfortunately, Steven Pinker. And I'm talking her with personally, because I don't know how he even came to know about me, but a friend uh, showed me that in his blog he always attacks me, politically also. Like I'm the crazy guy who doesn't seem that behaviorally, evolutionary, uh, capitalism is the only thing that works, and so on and so on. So, uh, uh, Pinker claims, my old example, sorry if I repeat myself, Pinker claims, Stephen Pinker, that, you know, when he's confronted with this big problem, why is humanity so why don't don't we understand ourselves how our brain works because even most of the uh, uh, evolutionary psychologists admit that we like that the what does it mean consciousness awareness self relationship it's an enigma it doesn't even serve a clear evolutionary function Okay, uh, Pinker's answer is this one. But why should we be able to understand ourselves or to ask great metaphysical questions? His answer is a deceivingly stupid one. It's that for the same reason that rabbits don't understand infinitesimal calculus. Because they don't need it. It's not part of their universe. They should know how to catch, I don't know what stupid animals, or how to, how to get at their stupid carrots, or whatever, to copulate. And he claims, in the same way, our language and logos, understanding, were evolutionary developed for a couple of purposes. Collaboration, working, surviving, mating, uh, seduction, whatever, and simply... To do this, we don't need to understand ourselves. It's simply not the evolutionary function of our reason. 
Yeah, but you know, there is one brutal, clear counter argument that I'm quite surprised that he doesn't mention it. Yes, but the difference is nonetheless that the stupid rabbits also are not bothered by infinitesimal calculus. It's out. But the enigma is why do we humans, why are we so obsessed precisely by problems which are unsolvable for us? And you cannot simply say in the positivist way, so okay, let's drop metaphysical questions, let's just deal with serious problems. A quick look at the history of science will show you that all great scientific discoveries emerged in this way that you tried to solve an unsolvable problem, you failed, but as a byproduct all great things emerged, and so on and so on. And I think that not in a vulgar sense that even when you solve problems, you secretly dream how to screw a lady, or I'm sorry, or whatever. It's not that it's sexualized in this primitive way that, you know, all knowledge is ultimately knowledge about sex. No, it's more fundamental, is that this very structure of insolvable problem, impossibility, is in itself formally sexualized. So, when we are dealing with these intrigues now, the latest prospects of our human development, the prospect of how, uh, of how, what will become if this, and even you mentioned it, it's nice that you mentioned it, in your uh, transgender text, you know, this prospect of simply leaving the, the, the gendered reproduction behind, through, and so on, no? What will happen if this impossibility of sexual relationship disappears from our lives through, I don't know, propagation becoming simply through genetic artificial insemination, blah, blah, blah. I claim, maybe I'm a conservative here, we will not lose just sexuality, but precisely many of our uh, intellectual functions. I'm not a pessimist here. I'm just saying that the guy whose book I recently read, it's an oversimplistic book, I hate it, but he makes one good point. Yoval uh, uh, Harari, Homo Deus, a big bestseller, it's terribly simplified. But he makes one nice point. He says how even those critics of humanism, those preachers of post-humanity, who admit rationally, yeah, no free will, uh, uh, the time of us humans is over, they nonetheless talk in a way the position from where the talk it's as if somehow we remain the same human beings with all our desires and so on what we are they are not radical enough they don't go to the end they don't they don't really subjectively assume what their theory is official theory is saying they claim we have no freedom and so on, and then the way they proceed, the way they argue and so on, is nonetheless as if we are still the same human beings with the freedom of argumentation and so on and so on. So uh, uh, I claim that uh, the key point is to avoid these stupid deadlocks, you know, like to either to fear artificial intelligence or whatever we call it as, oh, end of humanity and so on, or even worse, the, and the guy is really an idiot, I claim, Ray Kurzweil's solution. It will be happy singularity, all of us will be one great collective mind and so on and so on. He even dreams that 
He thinks that this will happen, this jump into singularity in the next 20, 30 years. So he even claims he already will be there. My, please interrupt me, always. I'm going to interrupt you now. Yeah. I think what you're saying is if no desire, no knowledge, no being and its failure, that nothing can actually displace that without displacing everything. The reason why I'm stopping you, however, is because we have half an hour and I was wondering if you would be happy to open it up for a few minutes to see if there are people who would like to intervene from the floor. I understand from my communications with Esther Leslie that in the last two classes you've intervened sort of quite spontaneously at all points throughout the conversation. Today you sat here in complete They are afraid of you, silence. not of me. That was my effort. <laughs> what is in different from the first two sessions? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why is this night different from... Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I thought I'd just leave... Yes, I thought I'd create an opening if you're okay, happy with okay. that for no, people. No, 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 I agree. Yeah. But just to clarify, literally half a minute, I'm sure. not kidding. My position, Never you know, I am not saying now that it will be the end of the world, etc. I just am totally open here I don't know what it will mean. Mm. To, uh, I, okay, that's all. Ah, okay. From one moment, it's totally against my nature. I will keep my word. And <laughs> no, really one minute, less than a minute, actually. Yeah, that's okay. horrible. I don't know what's all happening right. with okay. me, please. But if you don't give enough questions, I can still go on. That's okay. <laughs> okay, so on, on Monday, I think we established uh, the only subject of the talk is between psychoanalysis and philosophy. So. On Monday we established that there's a gap between psychoanalysis and philosophy, and then on Tuesday you elaborated and you said that the gap exists within philosophy, philosophy, within philosophy, and that psychoanalysis takes it as its object of study. The gap. The gap, yes. Yes, but not directly. Like, yeah, well, I would like to have a... Freudian book and Freud giving a lecture on the ontological gap yes, and so yes, on. Yes. But the okay, I'll put it this way. Immediately, yeah. I will give okay. you backward. Well, My point is just that the argument. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. There, there is an encounter, but effectively, psychoanalysis takes it as an object. Now, I'll just get to the question. So today, the question is this: If psychoanalysis takes philosophy as its object of study, mm. then what is the subject in philosophy? The question is. What is the subject? The Freudian subject. Here yeah. you will not what get What is the me. subject of philosophy? By, by, sorry, by subject you mean the agent, the one who philosophizes, not as an empirical person, or do you mean the position from which subjectively a philosopher speaks, or you mean subject in the sense of subject matter? That's what I didn't get. You know, you know what I mean? Do you mean subject in English means... Subject like ego, subject. and subject, subject like I'll subject matter. If you like, I was, I was speaking about the subject in philosophy and also the subject in Lacanian psychoanalysis. So effectively, I see them as being unitary. What yes. is the subject then? If by subject, and I think I am right, you mean the subjectivity, then I follow Lacan here. Uh, it's the, Car the Cartesian cogito is the subject of the unconscious. It's a beautiful definition. Why? Because it's very counterintuitive. Usually, it's perceived that Cartesian subject is all abstract, pure reasoning, while Freud brings us to this philosophy of life, wealth, depth, and so on. I think... I'm sorry, you still... I mean, the Cartesian cogito. What, what is the subject of the Cartesian cogito? This is what we're... No, I don't get it. What do we mean by subject here? You mean, what is it made of? In terms of subjectivity, yeah. What, what, what would you say it's made of? I mean, what, what is the substance? No substance. There's no substance. 
No, no, subject. It's not what for me. I'm not laughing. Uh, you will have in my new book already in this one. My God, disparities. I have. I think uh, at the end of the second chapter. Uh, the, uh, sorry, no, I'm not laughing. Allow me. Uh, the whole second chapter where I go against the so-called uh, object-oriented ontology, which is now. Their whole point is to resubstantialize the subject. Their point is that we transcendental philosophers think there is totally apart from objects some pure thinking subject and uh, their point is but subject is ultimately an object like others. A substantial object impenetrable to itself and so on and so on. I think the paradox of what in modern tradition is called subjectivity it's precisely that it's uh, I cannot do another thing than to use this paradoxical term subject is an appearance which is not an appearance of anything behind it usually in appearance phenomenology yeah. just, just appearance yes. so that, that's where the subject is just an appearance is that what you're suggesting Yeah, but things get extremely complicated here. <laughs> What do we mean by appearance? You know, uh, Freudian unconscious, I claim, is not the deep substance which appears in our consciousness, but, and this is how I read also fetishism theory of Marx, there are objective appearances. There are appearances of which we are not aware as appearances. Subject doesn't have a substance. Subject is not simply an appearance, but it's as it were the void of you know well, what no, I nothingness. Nothing. Absolutely. But this nothing then has a name, death drive negativity. Can I come in here just for a second? Because you started with the cognitive. It's a male bonding, but okay. mercilessly yeah. will allow okay, you. I'm to breaking appear. up the male bonding. <laughs> you know, I think therefore I am, to which Lacan's reply was, I am there where I do not think to be. Yeah. I am there where I am yeah. the very plaything of my thought, which is that the subject of the unconscious is not a subject like anyone you've ever seen before. Yeah. That's the point. What bothers you? Please strike back. I mean it seriously. Strike no, back. no. I mean it seriously. Like, You're not something happy. bothers really you. Not happy. No, I, I don't understand. What you just said now is the subject as being uh, the subject of the unconscious, something we've never encountered before. Now, that, that, this is still. Not explain no, uh, what the subject is. You know, this is it's mystification. This is what what was it's mystification. This is. Well, do you have an answer to your question? Yes, yes. I, of course I do. Oh, well, let's have please. A... <laughs> well, um, the answer to the question. Uh, I'm, I'm working on a book at the moment. I don't want to kind of. I knew that this is behind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Please, but can you give us a hint? <laughs> no, you have to answer your own question. Yeah. If you have an answer, you have to share it with us. No, I don't have to. Why, why do I have to? Because yeah. you've been asking us. <laughs> or ask yeah, no, I'm, I'm asking what your position is. No, My position is precisely that subject is an appearance where there is nothing behind the appearance. The subject to avoid the subject nothingness. Yes, no, but the paradox is this one that, of course, there is some kind of material foundation. I, I'm not saying subject exists as void somewhere. Yeah. It's a void of the body, but it's a point. But you know what I'm trying to look. Listen, uh, even even intelligent uh, 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 Darwinian cognitivists admit this. For example, when they say the basic magical shock is this one. Let's say 
somebody studies me or any one of us and you look at the brain and whatever and you never encounter the subject yeah, well, this, this is the whole problem in, between science and philosophy today cognitive science, phenomenology uh, what I'm saying and I've written hundreds of pages on it is that whenever <laughs> cognitive science tries to answer this in a positive way by saying this neural process or that is subject it doesn't work never, they never encounter the void they never encounter nothingness there's always more material ok if you go back this might be help yeah. it might not but if you go back to Louis Hemslev and Roman Jakobson yeah. the subject is the speaking I yeah. And the I is a shifter, which means to say it is not a referent, it's only reference. This is an indexical well, sign. Its only know. reference is to the moment of utterance at which you speak. Yeah. Right? So the subject is an effective discourse. Yeah. That would be well, the Also, the also this, this is uh, Trump, you know, he's, he's a kind of subject, he's the subject of, of the I, this kind of transcendental ego that seems to hover above. And don't accept the analogy with Trump. No, so it is. No, 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 no. You're precisely, precisely, precisely <laughs> Trump, look, this is Trump is a full material vulgar ego, you know. <laughs> Please, we have another question. No, but I'm so no, sad no. we cannot go we into this, because further. I would... Uh, We're stuck. No, no, sorry, but just to go, uh, half a minute, even more immediately. All I'm saying is just that I don't accept it that we philosophers are dreaming while uh, cognitivists have a firm answer. They don't have it. I agree with you. Because even, for example, do you know the beautiful paradox? The more they try to explain consciousness, and you always, in all intelligent cognitivists admit it, when you explain consciousness in the sense of, you see, I'm doing it is my conscious mind, but you see how this goes on at neuronal level, yeah. always the question pops up, okay, you explained it perfectly. Why then consciousness? Why then doesn't it go on just as a blind process? And to be very clear, I am not here an idealist. I claim our ego is an effect of the body and so on and so on. You know, which is my ultimate answer, the one that the most intelligent cognitivists like Stephen Jay Gould arrived at, that consciousness is what he said, the, the, this kind of a, uh, 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 accidental byproduct. Consciousness is a philosophical dead end. Now you can spend it's all your time... Philosophical dead end. You spend all your time thinking about it, trying to solve it. There's no real definition. For no, it. Uh, so you just keep I would just add subjectivity. On the other hand, I think has uh, potential. No, no. Here things get more complicated because I think that between okay. subjectivity okay. and okay. consciousness, there we is a third. We have another person to get together over a coffee or something. Yes, I agree. I like to watch it. Though. Okay, <laughs> sorry. The final. Uh, I'll try to be quick. Uh, on the first day, you had this wonderful riff that was kind of reminded me of George Carlin when you took the 20 or so different sexualities and talked about what the class version of those would be. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, now that you just mentioned how ignorance is imminent to the sexual relation, is ignorance also imminent to the class relation, or is there something uh, different in that formation? There is, there is ignorance there also, but I will precisely try to explain to you in what sense. A uh, very simple example. Let's take once there was the distinction between left and right. You know what, what basic ignorance I see there? And for me, it's not a negative ignorance. It's its own solution. The paradox of left and right is that there is no neutral definition. Every definition that you try 
of what is left, what is right, will involve already a leftist or a rightist position. If you ask a right-winger, what's the distinction between left and right? The standard conservative answer is, we, the right-wing, are social stability, hierarchy, the left are those on the fringes, confusion, blah, blah. If you ask a leftist, you will get a totally different answer. This is, for me, the real of an antagonism where you cannot symbolically fix it. In the same way as for Lacan, there is no signifier of sexual difference and so on and so on. You cannot define class difference in an objective way. Every approach to class struggle is already from a position of class struggle. Okay, just quickly, if I may, but you mentioned, and then you, you uh, said in another way quite beautifully, that uh, without ignorance, you don't have sexuality. Yeah. So without this ignorance, do you still have class? But I wait mean, a minute, I did something else. You should also include here. I didn't say simply ignorance is the last word. What I said is that the solution is to shift, transmit, transpose ignorance into object, into impossibility, obstacle, antagonism in the thing itself. That's what I'm saying. So I'm not a mystic of, look, I'm not saying sexuality, we cannot know it. I said sexuality is the very structure of this not knowing it's not I'm not mystifying sexuality I'm the last guy to say sexuality is the ultimate mystery who knows what goes on and so on and so on that's not what I was saying if, no no I know I'm sorry here I'm ready to be if I were to be in the sexual act no sorry you will not like me now and, and, and somebody will tell me isn't, sex, yeah, yeah, immediately, immediately. isn't sexuality something mysterious we don't know what it is I would say just shut up and go on F, you know, like, uh, okay, sorry, okay, did my vulgarity. New question, please. So, if in your ontology you have a desubstantialized subject and also a desubstantialized reality, then what is the link between what a subject does and the way that re uh, reality is? So, for example, if you have antagonisms in the end of your absolute recall, you have this, like, uh, speculative unveiling of a lot of antagonisms that hide, yeah. uh, you know, that get filled up by the state, identity, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, you can say that even if, for example, I as a subject don't uh, transpose the gap into uh, back into the object, of course, it's already antagonistic. But then, what's the role of the subject? For example, you cannot just remain in that position saying, okay, it's an antagonism, you have to make a choice. And then, um, a lot of times, you get back into this, like, pseudo-Nietzsche and the Leusian idea of, like, not you, but if you deal with this problem of, like, uh, actualizing something in the virtual and I don't feel like that's what you want to do but then if you uh, defend a certain position yeah, it goes beyond saying okay there's an antagonism between two elements but I'm choosing for example the ex uh, universally excluded element then what do you do and that also links back to what you say about the future being uh, determined but we can change the past of course but then you can have revisionism whatever so What's like the, and there again you get a niche problem like selection. What's your criterion of selection when you do a certain operation? Very nice question. I'm again uh, just world. sorry, I'm so sad that we don't have more time. Because you know what I'm trying to do in these speculations is the following. I will do this a little bit in this book, a little bit in the next book. I'm crazy. I'm already finishing. I claim that. Uh, 
Like I'm really trying to give some answers to this big question. Like, but okay, where do I stand ontologically? Is there any reality or whatever? And uh, what I'm trying to do with maybe sometimes eclectic references from quantum physics to politics to symbolic logic and so on is to claim okay, this will be now meaningless formulas, if I, but I will risk them, that uh, uh, think there are things because they are impossible. Actual things exist as a reaction to their own impossibility, as it were. Like, there are sexual pleasures because sexual relationship is impossible. Society exists because class struggle makes it impossible. And I even think cosmologically, I'm very afraid to say this, one can get easily caught in speculations that isn't something like this the ultimate lesson if I understand it correctly, but I did debate with some of them of quantum physics, that you have a certain, let's call it you know, the great danger in philosophically reading quantum physics is to read it in a Deleuzean way By Deleuzean way, I mean that you pose quantum oscillations and some kind of happy field of multitudes and then, oh, the bad guy, uh, collapse of one reality and so on. But no, we, the circle is full. We have this multitude of oscillations precisely because it's a reaction to a fundamental impossibility. Here I disagree even with my otherwise good friend Alain Badiou, who posits as the starting point is the real is the multitude of multitudes. And then somehow it gets caught into paradoxes through all these logical paradoxes, set theory. I think that there is a tension, a gap from the very beginning. There is multiplicity because one is impossible. Because contradiction is at the very beginning. And I'm just trying to ontologize. So, uh, when you asked me, but then if subject is a lack, if substance is a lack, well, they are not a lack in the same way. This is how I read Hegel when he says the key point is to grasp the absolute not only as substance but also as subject. Usually this is totally misread, as if Hegel wants to say substance, the ultimate foundation of all being, is a personal-like subject, God or an absolute subject. No, what Hegel's statement, subject is substance, means is subject is for, sorry, substance is subject, subject is for Hegel always something linked to failure, illusion, and so on. And what Hegel is saying is that substance is in itself thwarted, blocked, uh, structured around its own impossibility. And you find this in precisely the guys that you mentioned, Helmslev and all those. They were not idiots. Maybe it's time to rehabilitate them against this uh, Chomsky linguistics, a great idea, Chomsky, but I don't totally buy his linguistics. There is so many great things. Precisely this thing that for example, Levi-Strauss, when he deals with this empty signifier, Marda, or what that, in order to have a system, you have an element which embodies the very impossibility of this Suture. system. Suture. 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 Yeah. 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 And there is another mid-reading, I go with because the notion of suture was deeply misappropriated, again in this Deleuzean way, as if there is happy multitude, and then suture means a bad edible totalization, 
which tries to suture re- no 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 suture is from the very beginning there yeah. suture, yeah, suture is not is not a secondary suturing as they but can I link that back if you have for example your sublime object theology you also work with uh, substance and subject and then you also work with Benjamin's thesis on history and changing a certain dimension of it again yes, and then you have the part of positing presuppositions and presupposing yeah, positing yeah. so how do you link the subject's activity to reality, to the formation of what then Deleuze would call, of course, the virtual dimension of reality, because you, that's an ethical problem, maybe, but how do you conceive of that act of the subject? Uh, I will put it this way. These are really substantial questions, good, and can you... My first point would have been this one, maybe. Maybe you will claim I didn't answer, but I think I will give you at least, you know, like uh, to be evil towards myself. When somebody asks me a difficult question, my strategy is, which I even don't understand well, uh, my strategy is usually to say whatever I want to say. And then I say, I know I didn't answer a question, but did you see how I gave a first, made a first step? And then the guy is usually polite enough to say, yes, yes, you did it. But I will try to do it now. You answered a very important question. You know, like it's popular to say, for example, all these Marxists from linguists from Mikhail Bakhtin and so on, uh, this false, I think, appropriation of late Wittgenstein, how? Language does not only mirror, reflect from outside reality. Language is always part of a life world. We do things with this and so on and so on. What interests me much more is why do we even have to fight for this inclusion? Where does the gap come from? The true miracle of language is not that we are always part of reality, but how can we even imagine that we are not? I think the ultimate practical act is not the act of intervening, but the act of acquiring a distance from which you intervene or not. That's the, that's the ultimate act. The ultimate act, here Marx doesn't always get it right and Hegel does, the ultimate act is the act of stepping out. And here, I, I think, did I use it here or at some other stupid talk yesterday, I don't know, where I was... Uh, it's the, you know, I'm a primitive guy, only now I discovered this, that the beautiful ambiguity of the Greek term stasis, which means at the same time stasis as static, state, oh my God, you can correct me if I'm, but doesn't it also mean with some historians, stasis means resisting, standing up, in the sense of I stand up to you. I think they are ultimately the same. Reality is moving, and Benjamin knew this in dialectic in stillstand, at standstill death. The ultimate act of resistance is not saying no, but saying yes in an excessive way. You know, like, I stand up, I remain static while everything is moving, and so on and so on. So for me, the big problem of language and practice. It's not this bullshit, yes, language is also part of a life world. No, it's not. Language at the same time has a distance of negativity, can ruin a life world, and so on and so on. But I didn't... Somehow, about, sorry, we've got another question. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's women's oppression. I, I wanted to answer you. Yes, I know, I know. Oh my God! Yeah, your life is Okay, depending on how long the question is and how long the answer is, 
We have time for this question and possibly one other and possibly not. Okay. Yeah. What else? <laughs> Hi. Uh, you spoke at the beginning about your reading of uh, Christianity as the religion where uh, the Christian can believe in the God who just believes in himself. Uh, which you who cite, does not believe in himself. Yeah. Which you cite where your evidence is that of the, the cry of dereliction of Christ on the cross. Um, you also write a lot about Paul uh, in yeah. conversation with Pedro and Schmidt and the Gambin. Uh, and the sublation of law, sin as law, yeah. love, etc. Um, but the Paul, when Paul writes, he doesn't seem to be aware of the cry of dereliction of Christ on the cross, saying that. Um, he writes decades before the Gospels where they don't record that. So what I'm wondering um, is, are your writings and your uh, opinions on Paul and Christ separate, or are they connected? And if they're connected, is Paul aware of Christ on the cross? Does that affect what he believes about the Christian stuff? Wait a minute. Maybe Paul, of course, he didn't read Gospels because from what I know, the earliest text of Christianity that we have are Paul's letters. They come earlier than the Gospels. But nonetheless, I will give you an extremely naive answer. From what I know, isn't it that nonetheless... Paul speaks a lot about the death of Christ and resurrection. So he did know about death of Christ and resurrection. And that's what I that's why I am to put it like this for Paul. You know what Paul so clearly that Kierkegaard also repeated this clearly that the message of Christ is not what he claims. What he claims is a bullshit that every average preacher could have said. The uniqueness for Christ is as intelligent theologists say that his existence itself is his ultimate message. It's not what he says. This is why, and that's what I find, the wonderful, ultimate, almost perversity of Paul. Did you notice how Paul is, this was often noted, extremely indifferent towards what Christ did or said. Fuck that, the only thing that ultimately interests Paul about Christ is that the guy dropped that. And that in this way he redeemed us. You have none of this Christ visited those disciples, did this, this, that, and so on. That's what that's what Paul saw so clearly. That everything turns about then. That's why Christ is not a Messiah and so on. Now, who saw it? Of course they didn't see it clearly. And I think that's uh, the moment that I emphasize. But I claim this is how it is with every great Discovery By definition, when you really stumble upon something new, the first gesture is misrecognizing it. it so you say that what's contained in Lamas of Akhthani in the crowd direction yes. is contained in the death of Christ itself, and that that's what yes. causes... Yes, but even something more. The problem, but the, the, the reason why I think that I may be on the right path is that, again, I did it in the most naive, stupid way. I googled it, I sat for three hours in foils looking at how do Christians themselves, theologists, explain Eli Lama Sabaktami and all that stuff. And I encounter an incredible confusion. Basically, most of them are saying this remains, what does this mean that God himself is suffering? That this remains an, imperen- an, an impenetrable mystery. That's why from the very beginning, for example, I hate them, the most obscene guys are Gnostics. They claim that it was only the body of Christ that was suffering down there, while the spirit of Christ was literally there. Works somewhere above the Mount of Olives or where, and just laughing at himself and at, at stupid people who are 
guy there. And I think it's a consequent solution if you don't accept the radicality of it. And there are so many other enigmas. I think that the way to arrive at this, what I call bombastically, hidden truth of Christianity, is just to read all the inconsistencies, all the symptoms. For example, I'll give you another, I'll ask you another simple question, which I remember embarrassed so many of bishops I debated with in Vienna in Munich years ago. Why does Jesus Christ have to pardon us on the cross? Why is this needed at all? If he is all-powerful God, why doesn't he simply say, I pardon you? Why does he have to pay the price? At the beginning of Christianity, this was a great debate, and the, do you know that for some decades, the predominant version was contract with devil. Christ has to sacrifice. The idea was this one. On this terrestrial world, we are in the hands of devil. And crucifixion is the uh, deal between Christ and devil, or God. God tells David, I sacrifice my favorite possession, son, if you redeem, if you redeem humanity. Then some other theologists claim crime should be paid for, punished. All authentic Christian knows this is an obscenity. We are back in the pagan universe as if there is some kind of justice, domain of justice above God, to which even God has to be Subjected. Sorry, but for those idiots, Zeus and so on, this holds. Not for the Christian God. So what I'm saying, uh, the, uh, another thing is this one. But people even don't notice that. But crucifixion does not mean that we are simply pardoned. It's not that Christ sacrificed himself, so I now can rape, do whatever I want, and, uh, uh sorry guys, the, uh, that, that guy there already paid the price for me. In what sense are we redeemed through Christ? Try to answer me. I embarrass very priests through this one. Obviously, sorry. Okay, I stop. Okay. okay. Now we do have to stop. There is one more question, but it will have to go without an answer. So the question is whether you just want to state it at the end. Yes, I'm looking at you. Yes. Do you want to state your question? It's, okay. it's a comment on that last. If it's a comment, then that's fine. And then but can you condense the comment into, into one sentence? Yes. Yeah, and then we're going to have to stop. But I wanted to give you voice. Yeah, please. Yeah. It might seem a bit heretical, but surely the simplest explanation for that cry of abandonment yeah. is that it, it narrates the feelings of the author. It's of the author? Of the author of the gospel. It's a projection, is it not? Yeah, but you know what a radical... My God, if you were to be in Middle Ages... You would burn so in such a juicy way for this. Because, I mean, it is just the author... Then it's just a, then. It's but just the text. Whoa! You definitely burn. No, definitely burn. Slowly, you will burn slowly, slowly, like you know, like I was told somewhere that to do a really good steak, it must burn slowly, you know. Like.